0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Every month, we ask a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. Today, we'll hear a story chosen by Louise Erdrich, Dance in America, by Laurie Moore. The house, truth be told, is a shock.
1: Maple seedlings have sprouted up through the dining room floorboards from where a tree outside is pushed into the foundation.
0: Louise Erdrich is a poet, novelist, and short story writer who has been contributing to The New Yorker since the late 1980s. In fact, both Laurie Moore and Louise Erdrich first appeared in the magazine in 1989. She joins me now from the studios of Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul. Hi, Louise. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm good. So Laurie is, is obviously a contemporary of yours. She's not a historical figure from way back in our archives. Have you been reading her work for a long time? Oh,
1: I have. I think the first time I read Laurie Moore was Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? And I loved that novel so much. I didn't realize she wrote short stories and went back. And then I've been one of her biggest fans ever since.
0: You're from Minnesota, and Laurie has lived in Madison, Wisconsin for years. The Midwest is a literary territory for both of you, um, Mm -hmm. obviously in very different ways. But do you feel a kind of regional solidarity with her?
1: I wouldn't say that. You know, I, I love that it's set in the Midwest, but if there's a solidarity, it's more in a shared sense of the absurd and the, the humor in her stories. I, I love that. That's I'm looking for that all the time. <laughs> it's very hard to write that. Not many people can write at a depth and also be very funny. Um, there are few people who can. Philip Roth can. Laurie Moore can. And I think she gets that about the Midwest, that there's often a kind of irony to the people and the, the place
0: that very few people imagine would be here in the Midwest. One of the things I love about Laurie is that she's one of very few writers who can write directly about what are normally considered women's issues, you know, dating and marriage and fertility and children, and yet no one ever dismisses her as lightweight or calls it chick It's quite hard to do those things without mm. being somehow dismissed by the public. But she's much
1: too sharp for that. And she gets men so well. <laughs> and her men are, you know, Cal's very intelligent in this story, Cal very intelligent person with indeed a a sorrow in him. You know, again, she's dead on with her characterizations of people.
0: Dance in America is about a dancer who visits a small town in Pennsylvania, teaching young children to dance. And she looks up an old friend while she's in this town. And do you think there's anything else that we should know about the story before we hear you read it?
1: One of the reasons it appealed to me was because I was a poet in the schools in North Dakota. And... um, had to talk about poetry in much the same way this character talks about dance in this sort of elevated way, trying to persuade people of its importance in their lives. By the end of a residency, you really do start to believe all of these life-and-death things you were saying about your art because you just desperately want someone else to uh, communicate with you, and you want it to be important. And it does become important to people around you. And then you almost feel like you've betrayed your art. You find yourself in a very strange situation
0: when you're a poet or a dancer or an artist in the schools. We'll talk more after the story. Now here's Louise Erdrich, reading Dance in America by Laurie Moore.
1: I tell them dance begins when a moment of hurt combines with a moment of boredom. I tell them it's the body's reaching bringing air to itself. I tell them that it's the heart's triumph, the victory speech of the feet, the refinement of animal lunge and flight, the purest metaphor of tribe and self, its life flipping death the bird. I make this stuff up. But then I feel the stray voltage of my rented charisma, hear the jerry-rigged authority in my voice, and I, too, believe... I'm convinced. The troupe dismantled, the choreography commissions dwindling, my body harder to make limber to make go, I have come here for two weeks, to Pennsylvania Dutch country, as a dancer in the schools. I visit classes at colleges and elementary schools, spreading dance's holy word. My head fills with my own yak. What interior life has accrued in me is depleted fast emptied out my mouth as I stand before audiences answering their fearful, forbidding German questions about art and my horish dances, the thrusted hip, the sudden bump and grind before an attitude. They ask why everything I make seems so feministic. I think the word is feministical, I say. I've grown tired. I burned down my life for a few good pieces, and now this. With only one night left, I've fled the quality inn. Cream chicken on waffle, $3.95, reads the sign out front. How could I leave? The karaoke in the cocktail lounges kept me up. All those tipsy and bellowing voices just back from the men's room and urged to the front of the lounge to sing Sexual Healing or Alfie. I've accepted an invitation to stay with my old friend Cal, who teaches anthropology at Berkwell one of the myriad local colleges. He and his wife own a former frat house they've never bothered to renovate. It was the only way we could live in a house this big, he says. Besides, we're perversely fascinated by the wreckage. It is fastnacht, the lip of Lent, the night when the locals make hot fried dough and eat it in honor of Christ. We're outside before dinner, walking Cal's dog Chappers in the cold. The house is amazing to look at, I say. It's beat up in such an intricate way, like a Rauschenberg, like one of those beautiful wind-tattered billboards one sees in the California desert. I'm determined to be agreeable. The house, truth be told, is a shock. Maple seedlings have sprouted up through the dining room floorboards from where a tree outside is pushed into the foundation. Squirrels the size of collies scrabble in the walls. Paint is chipping everywhere, in scales and blisters and flaps. In the cracked plaster beneath are written the names of women who, in 1972, 1973, and 1974, spent the night during spring rush weekend. The kitchen ceiling reads Sigma Power and Wank Me With A Spoon. But I haven't seen Cal in twelve years, not since he left for Belgium on a Fulbright, so I must be nice. He seems different to me. Shorter, older, cleaner, despite the house. In a burst of candor, he has already confessed that those long years ago, out of friendship for me, he'd been exaggerating his interest in dance. I didn't get it, he admitted. I kept trying to figure out the story. I'd look at the purple guy who hadn't moved in a while, and I'd think, so what's the issue with him? Now Chappers tugs at his leash. Yeah, the house, Cal We did once have a painter give us an estimate, but we were put off by the names of the paints. Myth, Vesper, Snickerdoodle. I didn't want anything called Snickerdoodle in my house. What is a Snickerdoodle? Uh, I think they're hunted in Madagascar. I leap to join him to play. Or eaten in Vienna, I say. Or worshipped in L.A., I laugh again for him, and then we watch as Chappers sniffs at the roots of an oak. But a myth or a vesper, they're always good, I add. Crucial, he says. But we didn't need paint for that. Cal's son, Eugene, is seven and has cystic fibrosis. Eugene's whole life is a race with medical research. It's not that I'm not for the arts, says Cal. You're here... Money for the Arts has brought you here. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to see you after all these years. It's wonderful to fund the arts. It's wonderful. You're wonderful. The arts are so nice and wonderful. But really, I say, let's give all the money every last fucking dime to science. Something chokes up in him. There can be optimism in the increments, the bits, the chapters. But I haven't seen him in 12 years, and he has had to tell me the whole story straight from the beginning, and it's the whole story that's just so sad. We both carried the gene but never knew, he says. That's the way it works. The odds are 1 in 20, times 1 in 20, and then after that, still only 1 in 4, 1 in 1,600, total. Bingo. We should move to Vegas. When I first knew Cal, we were in New York, just out of graduate school, he was single and anxious and struck me as someone who would never actually marry and have a family, or if he did, would marry someone decorative, someone slight. But now, twelve years later, his silver-haired wife, Simone, is nothing like that. She is big and fierce and original, joined with him in grief and courage. She storms out of PTA meetings. She glues little sequins to her shoes. English is her third language. She was once a French diplomat to Belgium and to Japan. I miss the caviar, is all she'll say of it. I miss the caviar so much. Now, in Pennsylvania, Dutchland, she paints satirical oils of long-armed, handless people. The locals, she explains in her French accent, giggling. But I can't paint hands. She and Eugene have made a studio from one of the wrecked rooms upstairs. How is Simone through all this, I ask? She's better than I am, he says. She had a sister who died young. She expects unhappiness. But isn't there hope, I ask, stuck for words. Already, Cal says, Eugene has degenerated, grown worse, too much liquid in his lungs. Stickiness, he calls it. If he were three instead of seven, there'd be more hope. The researchers are making some strides, they really are. He's a great kid, I say. Across the street there are old colonial houses with candles lit in each window. It is a Pennsylvania Dutch custom, or left over from Desert Storm, depending on whom you ask. Kel stops and turns toward me, and the dog comes up and nuzzles him. "'It's not just that Eugene's great,' he says. "'It's not just the precocity or that he's the only child I'll ever have. "'It's also that he's such a good person.' He accepts things. He's very good at understanding everything. I cannot imagine anything in my life that contains such sorrow as this, such anticipation of missing someone. Cal falls silent. The dog trots before us, and I place my hand lightly in the middle of Cal's back as we walk like that through the cold, empty streets. Up in the sky, Venus and the thinnest pairing of sickle moon like a cup and saucer like a nose and mouth, have made the Turkish flag in the sky. Look at that, I say to Cal as we trapse after the dog, the leash taut as a stick. Wow, Cal says, the Turkish flag. You're back, you're back, Eugene shouts from inside, dashing toward the front door as we step up onto the front porch with chappers. Eugene is in his pajamas already, his body's skinny and hunched. His glasses are thick, magnifying, and his eyes, puffed and swimming, seem not to miss a thing. He slides into the front entryway in his stocking feet and lands on the floor. He smiles up at me, all charm, like a kid with a crush. He has painted his face with merthiolate and hopes we'll find that funny. Eugene, you look beautiful, I say. No, I don't, he says. I look witty. Where's your mother? asks Cal, unleashing the dog. In the kitchen. Dad, Mom says you have to go up to the attic and bring down one of the pans for dinner. He gets up and chases after Chappers to tackle him and to bring him back. We have a couple pots up there to catch leaks. Cal explains, taking off his coat, but then we end up needing the pots for cooking, so we fetch them back. Do you need some help? I don't know whether I should be with Simone in the kitchen, Cal in the attic, or Eugene on the floor. Oh, no, you just stay here with Eugene, he says. Yeah, stay here with me. Eugene races back from the dog and grabs my leg. The dog barks excitedly. You can show Eugene your video, Cal suggests as he leaves the room. Show me your dance video, he says to me in a sing-song. Show me, show me. Do we have time? We have fifteen minutes, he says with great authority. I go upstairs and dig it out of my bag, then come back down. We plug it into the VCR and nestle on the couch together. He huddles close, cold in the drafty house, and I extend my long sweater around him like a shawl. I tried to explain a few things in a grown-up way. How this dance came to be, how movement, repeated, breaks through all resistance into a kind of stratosphere, from recalcitrance to ecstasy, from shoe to bird. The tape is one made earlier in the week. It is a demonstration with fourth graders. They each had to invent a character, then design a mask. They came up with various creatures, Miss Ninja Peacock, Mr. Bicycle Spoke Head evil snowman, saber-toothed mom, half girl, half man, half cat. Then I arranged the kids in a phalanx and led them, with their masks on, in an improvised dance to Kenny Loggins' This Is It. He watches, rapt. His brown hair hangs in strings in his face, and he chews on it. There's Tommy Crowell, he says. He knows the fourth graders as if they were royalty. When it is over, he looks up at me, smiling but businesslike. His gaze behind his glasses is brilliant and direct. That was really a wonderful dance, he says. He sounds like an agent. Do you really think so? Absolutely, he says. It's colorful and has lots of fun, interesting steps. Will you be my agent, I ask. He scowls, unsure. I don't know. Is the agent the person who drives the car? Dinner's ready, Simone calls from two rooms away, the wank-me-with-a-spoon room. Coming, shouts Eugene, and he leaps off the couch and slides into the dining room, falling sideways into his chair. Whew, he says out of breath, I almost didn't make it. Here, says Cal, he places a goblet of pills at Eugene's place setting. Eugene makes a face, but in the chair he gets up on his knees, leans forward, glass of water in one hand, and begins the arduous activity of taking all the pills. I sit in the chair opposite him and place my napkin in my lap. Simone has made a soup with hard-boiled eggs in it, a regional recipe, she explains, as well as Peking duck, which is ropey and sweet. Cal keeps passing around the basket of bread, anxiously, talking about how modern man has only been around for 45,000 years and probably the bread hasn't changed much since then. Forty-five thousand years, says Simone. That's all? That can't be. I feel like we've been married for that long. There are people who talk with their hands, then there are people who talk with their arms, then there are people who talk with their arms over their head. These are the ones I like best, and Simone is one of those. Nope, that's it, says Cal, chewing 45,000. Though for about 200,000 years before that, early man was going through all sorts of anatomical changes to get where we are today. It was a very exciting time, he pauses a little breathlessly, "'I wish I could have been there.' "'Ha!' exclaims Simone. "'Oh, think of the parties,' I say. "'Right,' says Simone. "'Joe, how have you been? "'Your head's so big now, "'and what is this crazy thing you're doing with your thumb?' "'A lot like the parties in Soda Springs, Idaho.' "'Simone used to be married to someone in Soda Springs, Idaho,' "'Cal says to me. "'You're kidding,' I say. "'Oh, it was very brief,' she says. "'He was ridiculous. "'I got rid of him after about six months.' "'Supposedly he went off and killed himself.' "'She smiles at me, impishly. "'Who killed himself?' asks Eugene. "'He has swallowed all of the pills but one. "'Mommy's first husband,' says Cal. "'Why did he kill himself?' "'Eugene is staring at the middle of the table, "'trying to think about this. "'Eugene, you've lived with your mother for seven years now, "'and you don't know why someone close to her "'would want to kill himself?' Simone and Cal look straight across at each other and laugh brightly. Eugene smiles in an abbreviated and vague way. He understands this is his parents' joke, but he doesn't like or get it. He is bothered they have turned his serious inquiry into a casual laugh. He wants information. But now, instead, he just digs into the duck, poking and looking. Simone asks about the school visits. What am I finding? Are people nice to me? What is my life like back home? Am I married? I'm not married, I say. But you and Patrick are still together, aren't you? Cal says in a concerned way. Uh, no, we broke up. You broke up? Cal puts his fork down. Yes, I say, sighing. Gee, I thought you guys would never break up, he says in a genuinely flabbergasted tone. Really? Really? I find this reassuring somehow, that my relationship at least looked good from the outside, at least to someone. Well, not really, admits Cal. Actually, I thought you guys would break up long ago. Oh, I say. So you could marry her, says the amazing Eugene to his father, and we all laugh loudly, pour more wine into glasses and hide our faces in them. The thing to remember about love affairs, says Simone, is that they are all like having raccoons in your chimney. Oh, not the raccoon story, groans Cal. Yes, the raccoons, cries Eugene. I'm sawing at my duck. We have raccoons sometimes in our chimney, explains Simone. Hm. I say, not surprised. And once we tried to smoke them out, we lit a fire knowing they were there, but we hoped that the smoke would cause them to scurry out the top and never come back. Instead... They caught on fire and came crashing down into our living room, all charred and in flames and running madly around until they dropped dead. Simone swallows some wine. Love affairs are like that, she says. They are all like that. I'm confused. I glance up at the light, an old brass octopus of a chandelier. All I can think of is how Patrick said when he left, fed up with my selfishness, that if I were worried about staying on alone at the lake house, with its squirrels and call girl style lamps, I should just rent the place out, perhaps to a nice lesbian couple like myself. But Eugene, across from me, nods enthusiastically, looks pleased. He's heard the raccoon story before and likes it. Once again, it's been told right with flames and gore. Now there is salad, which we pick and tear at like crows, Afterward, we gaze upon the bowl of fruit at the center of the table, lazily pick a few grapes off their stems. We sip hot tea that Cal brings in from the kitchen. We sip until it's cool and then until it's gone. Already the time is ten o'clock. Dance time, dance time, says Eugene when we're through. Every night before bed, they all go out into the living room and dance until Eugene is tired and falls asleep on the sofa. "'Then they carry him upstairs and tuck him in. "'He comes over to my chair and takes my hand, "'leads me out into the living room. "'What music shall we dance to?' I ask. "'You choose,' he says, "'and leads me to the shelf where they keep their compact discs. "'Perhaps there is some Stravinsky, "'perhaps Petrushka with its rousing salute to Shrovetide. "'Will you come see me tomorrow when you visit the fourth graders?' "'He asks as I'm looking through the selection.' too much Joan Baez, too much Mahler. I'm in room 104, he says. When you visit the fourth graders, you can just stop by my classroom and wave to me from the door. I sit between the bulletin board and the window. Sure, I say, not knowing that, in a rush, I will forget, and that I'll be on the plane home already, leafing through some inane airline magazine before I remember that I forgot to do it. Look, I say, finding a Kenny Loggins disc, It has the song he heard earlier, the one from the video. Let's play this. Goody, he says. Mom, Dad, come on. All right, Eugenie boy, says Cal, coming in from the dining room. Simone is behind him. I'm Mercury. I'm Neptune. Now I'm Pluto, so far away, says Eugene, dashing around the room, making up his own dance. They're doing the planets in school, says Simone. Yes, says Eugene. We're doing the planets. And which planet, I ask him, do you think is the most interesting? Mars with its canals, Saturn with its rings? Eugene stands still, looks at me thoughtfully, solemnly. Earth, of course, he says. Kel laughs. Well, that's the right answer. This is it, sings Kenny Loggins. This is it. We make a phalanx and march, stretch, slide to the music. We crouch, move backward, then burst forward again. We're aiming to create the mildewy, resinous sweat smell of dance, the parsed, repeated movement. Cal and Simone are into it. They jiggle and link arms. This is it. In the middle of the song, Eugene suddenly sits down to rest on the sofa, watching the grown-ups. Like the best dancers and audiences in the world, he is determined not to cough until the end. Come here, honey, I say going to him. I'm thinking not only of my own body here, that unbeguilable broken basket, that stiff meringue. I am not, Patrick, thinking only of myself, my lost troop, my empty bed. I am thinking of the dancing body's magnificent and ostentatious scorn. This is how we offer ourselves. Enter heaven, enter speaking. We say with motion, in space, this is what life's done so far down here. This is all and what and everything it's managed. This body. These bodies. That body. So what do you think, heaven? What do you fucking think? Stand next to me, I say. And Eugene does. Looking up at me with his orange warrior face. We step in place. Knees up. Knees down. Knees up. Knees down. Dip. Glide. Slide. Dip. Glide. Slide. This is it. This is it, this is it. Then we go wild and fling our limbs to the sky.
0: That was Louise Erdrich, Reading Dance in America by Laurie Moore. The story was first published in the magazine in 1993 and is collected in Birds of America, available in paperback from Picador. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Laurie is is just the master of the opening gambit. The openings of her stories often feel like these very daring assertions. They make a claim or they force you instantly into this other world or they challenge you to think about something in a new way. And the the first line of this story, I tell them dance begins when a moment of hurt combines with a moment of boredom. That line is is what sticks with me the most. Just the the sudden shock of it. Mm -hmm. Does it have that effect with you? It does, and then she undercuts it by saying, I make this stuff up, you know.
1: But then by the end of the story, she's convinced us all the way through that this is it. That's what I love about this story. Every single detail works toward the ending, and the ending is lyrical and
0: funny and tragic. And also that final dance that they do, it, it is a combination of a moment of hurt and a moment of boredom. Both of those things are happening in that scene. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah. It's also the transcendence she talks about in the beginning as well. Mm-hmm. There's such an immediacy to Laurie's work. She dives into her stories. She doesn't stop to explain who her narrators are. You just have to pick up what you can and keep moving with the story, which in one way asks a lot of us as as readers. But in another way, she never tries our patience. We don't have to wade through backstory and, and catch up, in a sense, to the narrative that's happening. Well, as I was reading it, I realized that there was so much dialogue. I mean, she does
1: this so very well. It fits in seamlessly, and you don't realize that you're caught into the story through very quick back-and-forth sort of a call response between the characters. I think this is part of what makes her work so, um, you said something about it, never being chicklet. The dialogue captures so much of the edginess and yet the kind of wacko quality of conversations between people. The way things seem to come out of left field, and then they completely connect by the end of the sentence. Mm -hmm. It brings it all together, the conversation about evolution, which sort of devolves into this um, Soda Springs, Idaho. This is the way people talk, but... So few people really can put it down on paper and have it sound convincing or anywhere near normal. This is all so carefully
0: constructed. And and yet it seems spontaneous. Yeah. You don't have a sense of of the writer having sat at her desk laboring over these lines, which she probably did. There's no question she did. Everything is dovetailed together so nicely, you know. The
1: the fast knock, the people celebrating before Lent by eating dough (laughs) Eating fried <laughs> dough in honor of Christ. Eating fried dough in honor of Christ. That the we're best going lines. into Lent. You know, I had someone read one of my books for Lent, you know, because <laughs> Lent Lent is a kind of purgatorial time. And, you know, the desperate part of this story is the fact that there's this joy in this child. And you know that it can't continue. You know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of times she does look ahead. And and those times, just one of those times was wrenching to me when she realizes that she forgot to wave to Eugene. Yeah, I think that's the only time that she jumps into the future. She realizes that she could have just made that gesture and sort of plucked Eugene out of the, the mass of his little class into somebody
0: special for just that moment. Yeah, there's and there's just such a strong sense of the disappointment he must have felt even though you never see it. Yeah. I find her Laurie's writing quite hard to categorize. I can't really th- think of another writer who who does quite what she does. She doesn't remind me of anyone. Maybe a touch of Raymond Carver there. Do you see her as belonging to a particular school of writing? You know, I'm
1: very bad on schools of writing, but I I, I think she's a true original and maybe she'll make up her own school of writing and it'll be something when a moment of hurt combines with a moment of boredom. I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. In a way, she's a bit of a throwback. You know? She's a social observer of the kind that you had in the 19th century. She is. There's something quite wonderful about um,
1: going back a bit and thinking of her and Jane Austen um, somehow being in the same room.
0: Listening. Listening to what people are saying.
1: Listening and, and then... Going back and scribbling something down that absolutely um, there's a kindness in it, you know. Mm-hmm. She's she can take things apart with a kind of good humor and kindness that I think is quite unusual. There's never a sense that her care that she's making fun of anyone that her character is. Uh, although you know the creamed
0: uh, chicken on the waffle, maybe not <laughs> <laughs> just the quality. And that's not a person. <laughs> that's right. No, there's always there's always there's a, a warmth even when yeah. when her characters are ridiculous. She feels yeah, quite there's warm great affection, them. right? Yeah. Well, thank you, Louise. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Deborah. You Thanks. Too. Louise Erdrich's latest story, "The Reptile Garden," came out in the January 28th issue of the magazine, and you can read it on our website, newyorker.com. Her new novel, "The Plague of Doves," is published by Harper Collins. You can listen to previous fiction podcasts as well as other free New Yorker podcasts. Just go to newyorker.com or visit the iTunes store and type New Yorker into the search bar. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.